Welcome back, everybody. We're here for an all-new Sensible Medicine podcast. I'm joined on my screen with Marty Macri from Johns Hopkins University, John Mandrola, cardiac electrophysiologist from Kentucky, Adam Sifu from the University of Chicago, and Tracy Beth Hogg, who's joining us from here, UCSF. We are going to be talking about two things in today's video. The first, a new paper out now in The Lancet that is a pooled meta-regression of a bunch of old studies that tells us that natural immunity actually turns out to be quite protective. And then the second part, we're going to talk about conflict of interest, pharmaceutical conflict of interest, and other types of conflicts of interest that may be present in biomedicine. So let's kick this off. Marty, you know, I got to start with you on this. You were one of the first people, I think, who was brave enough to go against the establishment and say what doctors have been saying for a few hundred years, which is that if you have an infection and you recover from it, you probably are going to have some protection going forward against reinfection from that infection. So Marty, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about when you first had this thought, how the reaction was, and what was the mainstream opinion, so 2020, 2021? Well, I'd like to take some credit for coming up with the idea of natural immunity, but in reality, in 430 BC, after the, the Athenian plague, hmm. as I think Tracy and Leslie reminded me of, um, there, there was an observation that people that were infected were highly unlikely to get severe disease. And that became originally the idea of protection after you have infection, the idea of immunity. And then, you know, early on, we were very concerned about how do we staff our hospitals. There was a legitimate concern that we could have an onslaught of patients and half of the providers themselves sick or out and who would take care of them. So the early on, it really became an idea of how do we best resource the hospital? If you're young and healthy, your risk at that point appeared so low that we want those people on the front lines. The idea, remember early on that retired doctors were coming back from retirement to staff the ICUs? I mean, that was a really bad idea. And then we thought, well, look, if, they, if someone's had the infection, could, they could be in an ideal position to staff the hospital. So that's when it was pretty clear that we should keep an eye on this. And then, of course, the leading argument against something that we don't like in medicine is there's no evidence to support it. Well, that just means it's an unknown. It doesn't mean that it's not true because of the absence of evidence. So early on, we said, are we seeing people who have been infected with COVID coming in in the ICU getting intubated? Overwhelmingly, every ICU doctor said, no, I don't see that. So if that's the observational experience, we were trying to share that to make it a, pro a practical pol policy, but people were saying there's no randomized controlled trial to tell us that natural immunity is effective. And then we got more and more data and then the data finally caught up and then it was obvious that people needed some credit for natural immunity. And so then began, began the COVID games, really. You know, people deeply entrenched in their position and tribalism and the politicalization of the immune system where somehow antibodies were Democrats and, and B and T cells. Were... No, uh, natural antibodies were Democrats, but uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, no, vaccine antibodies were Democrats and natural antibodies were Republicans. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the politicalization of the immune system. 
So that's well put, Marty. And I think maybe if listeners have forgotten, I think in early 2020, it was actually discussed that people who had natural immunity could return to the hospital. I think your point about what is the evidence sufficient to believe in natural immunity, I think this is a mistake people make because randomized trials are very good for an intervention. It's a very different question here. The question is, by through no fault of their own, some people happen to get COVID. How do we judge if they have protection from that, you know, experience that we didn't wish upon them, but they just happened to have happened. And the answer is really well done cohort studies can demonstrate that. And they did demonstrate that it was known even in 2020. Adam, I wonder if you might say your thoughts on this Lancet paper, your thoughts on this topic. And when you became a believer that having COVID might protect you against COVID again. (laughs) I don't want to say something which will get people to just turn off, but I think this is so uninteresting because You know, when we think about evidence-based medicine, it kind of gets to what Marty says, you know, the truth is, right, we take what we know, we take what our experience is, and we take the best available literature, right? And come on, you know, we get immune to things. That's why the human race has persisted, right? And like, what would have to happen that there was this new coronavirus that we did not gain immunity to? It just makes no sense. And the likelihood that that was going to happen, you know, was like non-existent. Um, and I do think the point is it's that there was this strange politicalization of this. Um, and as Marty recalls, I was trying to f- actually find it on the internet before this, because I remember those early days where, okay, you know, you can come back to the hospital. You don't have to mask after being infected. Right. And then that disappeared as a possibility. Um, so I think that we should think about evidence-based medicine the way we learned it. Um, ideally, everything lines up and you have terrific data, you have terrific scientific rationale, and you have clinical experience. Often you don't have this. And this is a perfect example um, where you know our historical medical experience and our knowledge of biochemical or you know, pathophysiology lined up perfectly. And did we need evidence? I don't know. Not really. And I'm glad it's lined up, you know, and people are acknowledging it three years later, but not. The irony was you, the nurse could have circulating antibodies that neutralized the COVID virus, but they were antibodies that the government did not recognize. Right. And then they're fired as a result. But you know what? I guess I want to draw a distinction. So one of the reasons why the people, I mean, let's be clear, I think they did lie. And I think they knowingly lied because it was obvious, as Adam points out, not uninteresting. To me, the interesting part is the lie. Now, they lied and said it confers basically no immunity. And they were, the reason they kept articulating was, we don't want to send the message, this is to you, John, we don't want to send the message that you should go out there and get COVID so you have the immunity, because we'd rather, if you've never had COVID, get the vaccine. Well, you know, that's a very bizarre take-home point. You know, I wouldn't necessarily conclude that that's what people would walk away with. There are other takeaway points that they didn't talk as much about, which is if you happen to have COVID and you recovered, maybe we don't need to vaccinate you as aggressively. Maybe we can put you in the back of the line. Maybe we should do a separate randomized trial for you. And maybe if you're a 20-year-old boy and you've had COVID, maybe we should let you go and no longer boost you and give you the risk of myocarditis. So my question to you, John, is why did they seize upon that pessimistic idea that it's going to make all these people go get COVID and not the more optimistic, like we can actually deliver our medical products in a better way? Yeah, I have to be careful because I'm not an elected I'm not an immunologist, but I mean, obviously, like Marty and Adam have already said, this is just known. So I'm I'm like you. I'm interested in the meta point of why, you know, what what was going on with the messaging and um, 
and, and I'm just struck by the fact that what happened with this pandemic that we couldn't tailor therapy? I mean, we tailor therapy for everything in medicine, right? We look at stroke risk based uh, we based anticoagulation therapy based on stroke risk. We we base statin therapy on absolute risk. But why couldn't we do this with the infection? And I I have some theories, but I it's just I think this is one of the biggest learning points from the pandemic. I guess your point is that sometimes in your clinic, you'll give a statin to an 85-year-old woman, but you won't give it to a 25-year-old man. And that, right, okay, so that's obvious to me. Similarly, I would think that you might have different vaccination strategies if somebody's had COVID twice, or as somebody I was just talking to, he had it three times. Maybe they'll have a different vaccination strategy, but why did it have to be one size fits all? Uh, I have a theory. Let me just say that that one of the the mistakes I think that was made was – treating the American people like they were like they were idiots and couldn't handle nuance. And I take care of all kinds of patients in my clinic. And I, I can tell you that people can handle nuance if it's communicated appropriately. And I think having this one size fits all thing was just a, a shredder of trust. Tracy, why don't we turn to you? What are your thoughts on this? Let's yeah, so yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit yeah. about the timeline of what I remember, too, with, with natural immunity, because it, it was truly before the vaccine was rolled out, there was so much hope um, and optimism about people not getting reinfected and not getting severe disease, just like with other you know, viruses that there was immunity. And as soon as the vaccine rolled out, I I, I do remember that there was a trial looking at anti- antibody levels after getting a dose of vaccine in people who had already been infected, where the, it showed a boost in antibodies up to the level of two vaccines. And so I, I actually remember, I think some decisions were made based on that antibody article. Um, and uh, you know, I think that uh, what what the issue was, was that we, we didn't actually know clinically, but it didn't come that much later that we figured out. It was January of 2021 that we figured out that uh, um, immunity um, of previous infection against repeat infection and against severe disease was around 90%. And you can actually look at the articles from January of 2021. I'm thinking of one from Sweden, but there are actually multiple. And but you want, you want to draw a distinction between protection against reinfection and protection against severe disease? Because one is a higher than the other. Right. So so there's higher protection against severe disease and lower protection. It was closer to 80% against reinfection, but this was only initially. Like we didn't have the long-term data. And so they both decrease over time, although protection against severe disease decreases more s- slowly um, over time. Um, but but I think that, you know, what, what happened was um, – we, we put out, you know, initial guidelines and first we were vaccinating healthcare workers and, and then, you know, older at, at risk people. But then, um, you know, the, then we never really changed the guidelines to say, you know, if you've already been infected, maybe the vaccination policy should be different for you, especially if you're y- younger and lower risk. Um, and and so the question is, you know, why didn't we do that as the evidence changed? Um, and yeah. So, Adam, you wanted to say something? I just wanted to push, I don't know if it's push back, but restate. You know, I, I think your original point was very good. And I think John's point about that, you know, one of the problems here is that we didn't trust people to make rational decisions. And the idea that maybe, oh, people are going to like run out and get infected. So 
they have COVID immunity. You know, that's irrational, right? Um, there was a time though, right, early on um, when we were very worried about, you know, infection and overwhelming hospitals and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, it is clearly safer, right, to get a vaccine than to get infected. Um, and you're better off getting infected after the vaccine. You're better off getting infected after your infection. And what John said is really the point is that if this was communicated clearly and those steps were communicated, um, I think not only would we have been better shape with getting vaccines to who we needed to get the vaccines to, but we'd probably be in a better place now as far as people trusting authorities and saying, hey, you guys took us through a really bad situation in a rational way, which we couldn't manage perfectly because it's a disease that we have no control of. I couldn't say it better myself. And to me, that's the root of like why people don't trust the system. I want to go to Marty about firing, but I just want to make one more point about what Tracy was saying. Um, you know, to me, the place for the randomized trial is is what she's getting at, which is that if you've had COVID and recovered, if I give you a dose of vaccine, your antibodies will go up. And if you wait a while and give another dose, the antibodies will go up and they'll go up and they'll go up. But antibodies is not a clinical endpoint. It's a surrogate endpoint. And actually, every antibody situation has a different surrogate correlation coefficient. So even relying on the initial antibodies, which do have a sort of a, a good R squared, a good correlation coefficient with protection against severe disease, that correlation may not apply to the fourth dose, the third dose, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we needed was randomized trials paid for by Hmm, two people got 100 billion reasons why they could fund it, and they could run randomized studies of every booster in people who never had COVID, people who've had COVID, people who have COVID twice. Marty, let's talk about firing. Nurses were fired, Marty. They wrote to you. They talked to you. They were fired because they got COVID on the job, and then they didn't want to get the vaccine, so they were fired. What do you think? You know, there was a hospital in um, Washington State where the nurses were fired for not having the vaccine, even though they had circulating antibodies that neutralized the COVID virus from natural immunity. And then the hospital got hit with a big inflow of patients with COVID, and they didn't have enough nurses. Nurses were calling sick with COVID. The hospital sent a memo to the nurses at home and said, even though you're sick with symptoms of COVID, we need you as a nurse to come in and work because we don't have enough nurses and just try to avoid the immunosuppressed patients while you're working. You know, and there was yeah. a memo to the management saying, try to assign the COVID positive nurses that are coming into work to the COVID <laughs> patients. Uh, but, you know, real quick on what. But wait, uh, just, to, just to reinforce that point, what you're saying is that they'd rather have someone who's been vaccinated and actively coughing up COVID than have somebody who has natural immunity. That's And that's so deranged to take that view. It's deranged, but it appeases the vaccine gods. And well, let's, let's talk let's, let's talk about that. What is it? There, there, I, look, yeah. there's a, this is a cult. Let's be honest. There's, this is not even scientific. It's not a scientific discussion for a lot of the interactions with the medical establishment. It was an all or nothing indiscriminate vaccine policy because that was a simple message. And if you don't believe me, let me quote to you the AC, ACIP CDC committee when they ruled, they made their deliberation on the booster for five through 11 year olds. This is exactly what they said. Dr. Beth Bell of the University of Washington on the committee said, quote unquote, what we really need to do is be as consistent and clear and simple as possible, pointing out the need for a quote unquote consistent recommendation that is simple. Rather than accurate, rather than accurate, simply. Rather than, rather than scientifically valid, 
Um, the, the guy from the American Academy of Pediatrics, are you familiar with that organization? I um, heard they some made some. Some people still pay some. membership dues for it. But it, uh, the guy, David Chamberlain, said at that meeting, Americans are yearning and crying out for a simpler way to look at this pandemic. And then on and on, Oliver Brooks say, we can't say should, we have to say must, because if we say should, not as many people will get it. Wow. I and mean, this is a long history of medical paternalism. But we Marty, the, the, own- cult, the cult, I mean, you talk about one element in this sort of religious group, but they have a few defining elements. Here's what I put in their defining elements. Number one, they have a worship of masking. More masking, better, and indefinite masking, good. They like masking down to two-year-olds. They like a little bit of booster. A lot of it is good. Uh, and they have a Joe Biden bumper sticker. And so to me, I mean, you know, I, I'm a little tongue-in-cheek, but... It's a coalition of people who have similar COVID policy views and strong allegiance to the leftmost wing of the Democratic Party. And that's the they're also well represented in the academics and in these committees. And it's dangerous, I think. John, you want to say a 12 year old girl get 65 COVID mRNA vaccines in her average lifespan. Oh, you mean the yearly one for the. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's the 65th one that gives you that. Real oomph. That's the one you really need. John, you're shaking your head when Marty says simple, simple, simple. You're, you, you tell me when we write articles. Make it simple. Make it simple. So you do believe in simplicity, but you have limits. Uh, yeah, of course. Of course. But, you know, the thing that, the thing that I thought about when Marty was speaking about these just crazy things is that you, you, can, you can recommend nine things that make sense. But if you recommend one, that's like nuts. You lose your credibility. So the moment you're putting masks on toddlers who, you know, don't want to wear them or take them off during uh, their nap time. I was I picked up my grandkids and I seen them laying next to each other without their mask as if as if COVID doesn't float around the room. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 doesn't float around the room. So, you know, this gets to my point about Americans aren't stupid. They they can see that if you're doing that, if you're firing nurses, but telling them to come in when they're sick, that's it. You've lost it. And if you're a doctor and you do that, you've lost it. And so this is this is my point. Now, maybe, you know, we were talking last week about maybe in Denmark, things were more common sense. Maybe that's why people trust the government. I don't know. But we have to do better at, at communicating these uncertainties and nuances. John, that's so well articulated. That's the thing that I really frustrates me about this debate where FDA commissioners saying, oh, it's Joe Rogan's the problem. They're the problem. That's not the problem. The problem is you, under the auspices of public health, you made errors that even someone with just a grade school education can see are internally contradictory, and yet you want them to blindly pledge allegiance to you. Of course, they're going to push back. Tracy, thoughts? Closing thoughts yeah, on this topic. I mean, definitely. I mean, I think there's many problems with not giving people the nuance that they need. And it did end up in people losing their jobs. I mean, in, in Europe, I mean, they made it clear that there there were there were different, you know, there were there, there were different um, rules for um, you know, immunity from uh, from infection counted, uh, you know, for the COVID pass that they had, and they made it clear that there was infection that there was infection based immunity. And and here, I think you know, the one size fits all policy. It it um, you know, it resulted in people um, un- unnecessarily. Uh, it resulted in un- people unnecessarily losing their jobs, which was very unfortunate. And 
And, uh, and so I, but let I guess, me push back. Do you uh, think, yeah. um, I mean, maybe I'll put my hat on for, if I was one of these people who made this mistake, they'd say that, well, if we had taken your tactic, like all of you, all of your tactic and said, Hey, listen, if you had COVID and recovered from COVID-19, you know, maybe you don't, uh, need exactly the same vaccine schedule. Maybe we should do some special trials. If we took your tactic, there'd be a lot of people, one lying about it. They said they had COVID. They never had COVID or I had a sniffle. I thought I had COVID, um, or, um, seeking COVID. Uh, I guess the second one we already think is deranged, but would people lie about it, Tracy? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess, you know, in, in Europe, they required some some proof of a positive sure. test. But then, well I mean, we, we, we need to get also back to the point that, you know, why did we require these passports and the immunity proof and the proof of vaccination to begin with? Right. And I think maybe we're going to learn a lesson from that, that, you know, we actually didn't have enough evidence to say that these vaccines um, or, or prior immunity, you know, was going to keep anyone from getting infected in the future or infecting someone else in the future. And so I think one of the lessons of this pandemic is going to be, you know, that that we needed better data before we're like requiring people to be vaccinated and or show proof of prior to go, to go to their kids school to go to their school to keep their job like you know to travel to you know last you know the last chance you're going to get to travel to see family members right. and suddenly you can't go because you haven't had a vaccine but tracy let me pile on that point with uh, something because people say like oh we didn't know about escape mutants I think they're they're really damned on this argument. You know, I always oppose passports the whole time because in the beginning, if I got vaccinated or my grandmother got vaccinated, her protection was so great against severe disease that the additional benefit of forcing other people around her to get vaccinated was entirely questionable, unproven, and probably very small uh, to the point where some people have modeled and now there's been a peer-reviewed publication saying it's in the thousands, 5,000, 7,000 people have to be excluded to prevent one transmission under those circumstances. And then the moment you have escape variants, there's a different problem, which is no matter how many people you vaccinate, she's still at risk of getting it. So either yeah. situation, you're screwed. And so you never had a justification. Okay, we're going to go to the conflict topic. But Adam, closing thoughts on this issue. The man who was it's uninterested. Was <laughs> I said it was boring to begin with. I never want to talk about this again. <laughs> And and we lived up to that. That's uh, well, you know, we got to admit you got you got to be honest. All right. Now, the next part. And we have 20 minutes to talk about this conflict of interest. Um, I, I brought up we're on a time limit here. Is this like, you know, JAMA where you cannot exceed <laughs> 2000 characters or something? Well, you know, maybe that'll be a topic of discussion because, Marty, you know, I'm a believer in unlimited podcasting. I like them two hours or three hours. Now, Adam and John, they are hardworking people and they're like 40 minutes and this has got to be, you know, the audience is going to go away. Uh, and so, you know, it's a little, little debate, but it's a, it's a Sunday. Let's like, wrap it. Um, yeah, sure, it's Sunday. Tracy's got to go prepare her testimony before Congress about oh, congratulations. Uh, California trying to gang. Oh, that's an, and that's another good point, which, which is that, which is that if, you know, that law would prevent people from telling the truth, like in this situation. Uh, okay. Um, right. oh, here, he hasn't yeah. appealed yet, so we still have the preliminary injunction. It's going well. No appeal that, from Newsom. Well, that law is going to be struck down by the Supreme Court. There's no chance in hell they'll ever survive. And the biggest mistake they'll ever make is if they actually go after a doctor who can hold their own in debate because they're going to be humiliated. Okay, anyway. Um, North conflict Korea, of interest. Supreme Court would strike <laughs> Even North Korea wouldn't put up with it. Um, <laughs> it is so unjust. Okay, conflict of interest. Um, so 
I was bothered recently because I uh, was asked to stop by GU ASCO, which is the Oncology Clinical Conference. And I got to say, in my field of oncology, I don't know what it's like in cardiology, but it is, it's just so pervasive. Financial conflict of interest, and it's two buckets. There's research, which is, I think is acceptable. That's a lesser of two evils. And then there's personal payments to doctors. And the personal payments to doctors are like dominates. And all of these young people, you know, this was the point I was going to break to Adam. When I was young... And you were in a 10, no, yeah, when I was 10 years ago, 15 years ago when we met, my hope was that with a new generation, we would think differently about conflict of interest. People would take more seriously the pharmaceutical industry's role in manipulating study results, manipulating how we talk about products, and that the younger generation will come in and they'll be reformers and they will say, you know what, I'm going to personally avoid these kinds of conflicts. I'm going to try to be more independent. And for me, the bitter disappointment of 15 years has been they're just the same as the older generation. And I feel like we're losing this issue. So I guess that was the starting point, And I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, I'll start. And I would say, I think things have gotten worse. Um, you know, the debates in the past was, boy, does a drug detailer giving you pens or pads or a coffee cup make a difference, right? And if only we could go back to that time, right? Now, the randomized control trials in, you know, the most respected journals are, you know, funded, written, analyzed, you know, by the companies who are making the drugs. Um, and I think the heart and, and everybody who gives any talk, right, has a slide with 27 conflicts of interest. Um, and then the difficulty, which is, I think, the most important thing, is that people are intellectually so conflicted um, that because of what research they've done, because of how they practice, people are unwilling to sort of check themselves and say, you know, this is what I believe. And I'm looking at all the evidence, um, you know, with that, with those glasses on. So I have trouble analyzing it and coming out against occasionally what I should believe. They don't even know they're wearing rose tinted glasses. John, right. you are, you are nodding. What are your thoughts in cardiology EP? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, so there's two forces going on. One force is that in my field of electrophysiology, we've had this amazing explosion of technology that have really that have really helped patients and helped everybody. So we we cannot do our jobs without technology and without collaboration from industry, and we we need that. But so the the problem, the other force that's pushing against that is that they're they're only it only works when there's a confluence of interest and the, the, the industry or there, I don't, I don't look at them as nefarious. I don't look at them as bad. I look at them as profit. They're, they're, they're in this business to make profit and they see us as physicians as means for that. And so much of uh, success in academia Success in, in, in even private practice. If you want to be successful in private practice and move up that ladder, you, you cannot, you have to partner with industry. And so there's just these forces that, that, that cause us to, to, to need to be friendly with industry. And then, of course, the moment we're friendly with industry, we, we just lose our ability to have that critical appraisal. And, 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 and it, it it's, Adam is right. It is worse than it's ever been. Um, and and I, I don't know the solution. I, I feel blessed that, you know, I'm, I'm 
in the end of my career or in the seventh inning of my career and I've, I don't need it. Um, but I can see the problem with young people trying to move up both in private practice and, and academics. Third inning tops, John. Third inning tops. Um, you guys, you guys yeah. promised me you talk about baseball, so I guess this is what I have to accept as the. It's um... <laughs> all you're ever going to get. <laughs> okay, um, let me make it a little more complicated, and I have an answer to my own question, but I'm curious how you all think about it. Um, the COVID nineteen pandemic, I think, introduced the 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 epithet that people are being paid off. Um, Great Barrington Declaration was part of the um, what's that? Um, some libertarian think tank. That's what the, that's the allegation. John Yonides took five grand from JetBlue. Actually, was like the former CEO donated to a pool of research funds for which some of the money was used for Santa Clara. Um, and then also, many, many commenters are now the New York Times columnist because uh, the computer science professor who was the first to advocate for masking. Now columnist for the Times. Every time you write a column for the Times, maybe they'll send you some money. Um, people who are columnists for the Atlantic. Uh, columnist, because people who are CNN contributors, they pay you to go on CNN. Um, uh, I wouldn't know. They don't invite me, but I wouldn't also, I don't like uh, cable TV. Um, then there are people who've created Substacks. There are people who do YouTube. Um, there are people who write books. Are these also not conflicts? Are they different? How is it different than Celgene? Um, Marty, you want to tackle it? How do you think about this space? And, and also, there's a guy who worked at Harvard who works for the testing. He's the chief medical officer of the testing company. And guess what he says on Twitter every day? You need to be tested. I was like, Jesus, of course, you think I need to be tested. So how do you think about these, Marty? You know, I spoke at a, an oncology conference um, yesterday, and I actually met a guy who used to work at Moderna. He left, and he told me his primary job at Moderna was to follow me and see what I was saying and what was critical of Moderna. You know, that was his, his primary job. He was hired to keep track of what you were saying about Moderna. That's I right. believe it. Yeah. Now, um, you know, there are, you're right. Everyone is conflicted with some, right. We have a job. We're employed by the university. Uh, the universities receive money. Every single university gets pharma money practically, right. Every single medical center. But the problem is, is when you have a randomized trial or results of a, of a trial and they are being broadcast by the people who are conflicted, and you don't know that. And that's what we saw when every person went on the news and said, you know, the babies have to take the Pfizer vaccine. <laughs> right? Everyone was conflicted. Here's an example. So pregnant women were excluded from the original COVID vaccine trials. So to answer the question, should pregnant women get the vaccine, Pfizer launched a big randomized control trial in February of 2021. They mysteriously stopped the trial after 349 women enrolled in the study. There was no explanation given. The investigators never said anything. They should say something, right? They, should, they have a moral duty to speak up. Here we are 18 months later, the results of those 349 women have never been made public. And it didn't really matter for the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the CDC. They just recommended it for pregnant women with zero data. And maybe that's why they stopped the study. Maybe they realized, hey, we don't need to convince anyone. The cult has converted the leadership of these specialty organizations in the CDC. We don't need to provide any data. And running a study runs the risk of showing that there may not be a benefit in pregnant women. 
Yeah, I, Vinay, I want to just say something about putting putting negative studies or, or non-significant studies or in in a file drawer because you know the whole the whole SGLT2 inhibitor space may not have existed had they not um, had had uh, Elliot Spitzer not sued uh, for open data so that they could publish the results of rosiglitazone and then when they found out that rosiglitazone was actually could cause cardiac problems, the uh, authorities said, well, we need to study every diabetic drug for cardiovascular safety. And, you know, uh, Steve Nissen showed that rosiglitazone was actually harmful from a cardiac standpoint, or possibly harmful from a cardiac standpoint. FDA said, well, now you got to study these drugs. And so when the, when the SGLT2 inhibitors came about, they uh, found that they were actually beneficial, but they might not have even studied those and discovered that. So no, that's a good point. You put studies in the file drawer; that's a bad thing. I and mean, just, just, I, just to I, further explain this to the listener, what John is saying is that in response to the Avandia scandal, the FDA added a requirement for all cardiovascular drugs to achieve non-inferiority upper bound margin one point two. You had to show your drug didn't cause heart attacks. That was a condition of post marketing authorization. That ironically, allowed them to see the benefit of these new classes of drugs, which allowed them to develop it further. So in, in, a, in a weird way, sort of a, a safety requirement actually expanded market share in a tremendous way. It's actually but it wouldn't a, have happened. It wouldn't, have, it happened wouldn't had, have happened if those studies that the company didn't like were sticking, sh- stuck in the file drawer. Sure. You know, okay. the so-called publication bias. So I think there's a lot of themes that we all agree on, but I want to go to Adam's point. Is there a distinction between... You and I wrote Ending Medical Reversal. Are, are we not the same as taking money from Celgene? Or is there a distinction there? And what is that distinction? No, I think there's a lot of complexity to this because, you know, we know our audience, right? Um, and if we preach to our audience, right, we are going to get more attention from our audience, okay? Like, that's... Now, don't shake your head. Jack. Yeah, this That's this is where true. I'm going to pick. I will come back to it. All right, we'll, we'll allow you. We'll allow you your gambit. Yes, go on. Now, but we have to say, look, we are being true to what we believe. Okay, um, and we are speaking of that. And if we get attention for that, if we get money for that, that's fine. Okay, um, but that person needs to be honorable. I'm sitting here with you four people who I all respect. Okay, but. I am sure that each of you have thought about other people, you know, on Twitter, on YouTube, who are like, oh my God, that guy's just saying that to get the clicks and get the cash. That's a really difficult area. Okay, I want to try a stab at this because I think this is this is a very interesting point. Because I think all of us who've used Twitter, we're like, that person can't be that dumb. They must be saying it, you know, for the likes, right? Um, the distinctions I draw are a few, and let's see if you buy them. Maybe you don't buy them. Um, the pharmaceutical company, they, only, they, have, they can only make money in one way, by selling a product. Uh, the same with the device company. And they only make money from selling it. They, they, can't, they don't make money from not selling it. And so the moment that tie is connected, you're tied to something that has like a unidirectional profit incentive. In contrast, I think people can write books for or against saturated fat. You know, I think people have been accused of like, you wrote a book on saturated fat, that's why you promote saturated fat, or you wrote a book not to eat saturated fat. You know, you could write it in both directions. It doesn't have that unidirectionality to it. Um, And then the other thing is pharmaceutical conflict has been shown in like 200 studies. There's like a net vector of bias. These kinds of things, and what you're talking about, I think, is audience capture. The idea that you increasingly get captured by your audience and you stake out a position beyond what you truly believe. 
And your antidote for audience capture is integrity, which I agree with you. You need to always stay true to your own message to prevent audience capture. Um, I'm curious what John's point is, but the point I would say about my experience on all these platforms is that, you know, like when you use YouTube, definitely the algorithm has its play. Twitter, unfortunately, is not monetizable. So, you know, they can take that out for a second. But YouTube, I think the thing I come back to is that at the end of the day, if you were really in it just for maximum revenue, you wouldn't even talk about medicine at all. You would just go into lifestyle and naked politics and finance because like the audience for those is like 10, 10x larger. And so to me, that's also sort of an intrinsic check. And then to me, the most scary thought, Adam, is that some of these people... They genuinely believe the crazy shit they say. They really, they really do believe it. They really do believe it that they drink a bottle of water at work and hold their breath with an N95, and they only use a toilet where you can put the lid down when you flush because of aerosolized. Co- I think they believe it. John, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I couldn't disagree with Adam more about this because <laughs> I, you know, look, look for the last ten years, I've been in this space where. Um, I look at I look at medical professional societies. They 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 are conflicted because they they're supported by pharmaceutical companies. So they're they're biased in what they can say. I look at journals. What's the average? What's the what's the model for a journal? It's advertising. It's re, it's you know reprints, reprints. And, and 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 advertising. What's the what's the model for medical like journalism? Medicine, it's advertising. No. And so they're completely biased. When you take an independent Substack or an independent YouTube and, and it's supported by people paying their own money, it's like old fashioned Hayekian economics. It's just, it's, it's, it's fair. It's like buying shoes. If, if the shoes are worth the price, you exchange money for the shoes. And it's the same thing with Substack and books and and there it i think that the, the difference is it's transparent and it's open and it's pure and yeah. to me that's the difference and and and, and to your point this, there's no net vector because you can go out there and your message could be randomized trials for boosters you'll gain some followers your message could also be boost those kiddos with no data at all and those pla- those people can also be popular and the market is sort of sorting it out um tracy i'm curious you have mm-hmm. been the victim of a lot of slander um and i and I personally think you actually don't have conflicts, but I wonder if you might talk about how you think about it. Oh, so that's that's a that's an interesting question. Um, so, I mean, I think that you know, I, I was I was just considering this because a lot of people have said like that I I one of the things that I haven't done wrong is uh, that I've done wrong is I haven't talked enough about the benefits of vaccines and and I would say that you know in our in our last episode I brought up you know the original clinical trial data and the regression discontinuity showing benefits of the vaccines in the older population and in people who haven't already been infected and and you know and, and I've been talking about I, I I actually think it's important and our, you know, online presence to sort of like, you know, kind of show both sides of the discussion and been talking about how um, there's this inverse correlation with uh, excess all-cause mortality and the vaccination rate. Of oh, good point. Right. So that you you reject um, the uh, the all-cause yeah, mortality so I, argument I from Europe. Because yeah. it's, it's easy to sort of get fixated on a point that you want to prove and then you kind of come off as biased. And so, um, you know, I, I do think it's important if we're like, you know, um, I guess public figures uh, representing medicine and healthcare that we we kind of show that we're 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 actually trying not to 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 take sides but I think in terms of conflicts you know one of the biggest things that we've seen um in that wasn't the pharmaceutical conflict was more like 
researchers who have previously pushed for a certain policy who then kind of are hopeful to see that result in their own research to back up what they've done in the past. And I think we saw that, you know, with probably the Boston mask. <laughs> and just to, you know, just to tell listeners that one of the authors has a change.org petition that says mask dem kids. And then they have a paper that says, and that really works well. <laughs> right. And so that, like also the Duke researchers funded by NIH, like basically publishing, uh, you know, studies showing that masks work without control groups. And, you know, that I think it's been an issue that people have been conflicted in that way. But, but, let, but me, I let me, do, let me yeah. push you on it. Okay. Barack Obama was pro-choice. Okay. And when Barack Obama talks about why he's pro-choice, he cites evidence that, you know, it's safer for women, et cetera. Is that the same kind of conflict or is what you're talking about different than that? And because do we think of Barack Obama's conflicted? Yeah, right. So so he's citing evidence to support what he's saying, whereas I'm I'm actually talking about researchers, you know, actually doing a study to support what they've done in the past a little bit. So this is actually about their their publication. Let, but let's yeah, say think- let's say he actually conducts a study and then he, his study is going to be the, the benefits of Roe v. Wade, you know. Right. For, so then, you know. you know, that's the importance of like, you know, what what is the study design? What are the confounders like? And then um, it, and, and also like, um, you know, are the data available? And I wanted, uh, you know, publicly available for reanalysis. And I actually wanted to get to that point because I thought this tied in nicely with what we were talking about with the vaccines before is this issue of um, actually in Israel, you know, the the observational study that have been done, especially with like the Khalid healthcare system. Um, no spoilers, no spoilers. By Pfizer. No, I'm not. No spoilers. Because okay. we're working not, on a paper on this space. Okay. Publicly available. Okay. So, so they're sponsored by Pfizer, but not making their data publicly available. And, and I think like that just, you know, um, that really magnifies the risks of the conflict of interest. If researchers can't go in <laughs> And then reanalyze the data, and 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 so I do think that that's kind of like a bare minimum of what we should be requiring of yeah. uh, when the farm. And and I'll just point out one more thing, which is that the um, in terms of randomized trials, I just looked at this study uh, review yesterday published in BMJ that that showed that ninety nine percent of all the randomized trials during the COVID pandemic were on pharmaceutical products and not on non-pharmaceutical interventions. And so it, that's another issue is like so much of the money is just coming from the pharmaceutical industry um, and it dominates all of our focus and research. So we actually don't get answers to questions on, you know, many other types of mitigations that we're looking at or things that, you know, other things that people are recommending besides drugs. Um, That's so. super, super well put and an important point. And I guess, you know, I, I just want to push it one more time then I'll give to Adam. But um, I do think there are many carcinogens, you know, obesity might be a carcinogen and schistosomiasis is a carcinogen and maybe alcohol is a carcinogen. But the one carcinogen I know odds ratio 20 is smoking. So there'll be other carcinogens. There's, there's the one. And for me, financial conflict is the odds is a smoking of bias. You know, 200 studies show it has an odds ratio. We showed it had odds ratio 30 in a paper that I did with Allison Haslam. Um, intellectual bias for me is slippery because if you start to think of a study, how do you define it and how do you study it and how do you find the odds ratio? I think it's not so easy. And I'm kind of on John's page in terms of like, it's really just sort of a, a plethora of ideas and people going in their own space. All right, Adam, your thoughts. Are you satisfied that we're good people and they're uh, no. bad people? 
I'm not, I'm not totally satisfied. I think you're absolutely right about financial conflict of interest. There's no question we need to consider that. But we also have to admit that everybody is always going to be working on and commenting on things that they feel strongly about. Um, and it's important for those people to be honest with themselves, intellectually honest, you know, honest in the way that they design studies, honest in how transparent they are about study design. So we can assess, look, is this someone kind of on the up and up because they're interested in this, they're studying it, they want an answer, or because they're so intellectually conflicted that they couldn't imagine a different finding, that they couldn't imagine that masks don't work in the Boston public school system, right? And we need to be able to think about that for everybody we interact with. Yeah, that's well put. All right, everyone gets a closing thought. Start with you, Marty, then John, then Tracy, then Adam, then Route. Marty, I'm, closing thoughts? I'm still thinking about the toilet cover and how that can <laughs> reduce aerosolized transmission. Of you know, somebody said that on Twitter. <laughs> he, somebody did say that. Siren emoji, put that lid down, whoosh. Well, it's a, it's a profound hypothesis, so I'm interested. Now, I don't know if Dr. Fauci is on this editorial Zoom call here. Um, if I don't see him... Um, you may want to pass this on to him. You mean the science himself, you're saying? The science? Um, Dr. Fauci is the science, just so yeah. you know. Yeah. Many, have, many have claimed he is. <laughs> so Tracy brings up a good point. Almost all the money for research comes from the company, the pharma companies themselves. Isn't this an ideal role for government to say, we're going to fund studies where... Uh, pharma is not funding studies. We're going to fund studies where there's a health, where there's a scientific unknown, where there's a public health void of knowledge. I mean, isn't they've got what forty-five billion dollars a year to spend? And isn't this an opportunity for them to fund? That's that's why they funded the Wuhan lab. I mean, no, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. No, I don't DOD also funded. Yeah. Okay. But but your point is that Fauci should have funded NPI randomized control trials. He's a six million dollar, six billion dollar budget. He could have done it. He was the man to do it. I mean, when we think about, you know, I don't know how your research teams work, but we sit down as a research team at Johns Hopkins and decide what can we study. We also think about where can we get funding for studies. Now we have some um, generic money from donors that, you know, it's not non-directed, non-specified, non-directed money that we can dip into, but we've got to think about where can we get funding? So the only way you can get funding for a study from industry is if they perceive that it could advance their financial interests. What about studies that need to be done that may not advance financial interests or challenge deeply held assumptions about those companies' products? That's where the NIH should be stepping in. John, closing thoughts? Yeah, regarding the first topic, I just think that the, 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 the lesson is be nuanced, embrace uncertainty, treat, treat people um, uh, as if they can understand complex issues, uh, and on in the matter of on a matter of funding science and conflict of interest, I, I just think we underestimate the conflicts and the the confluence of interest that it requires to get funding and the fact that all of our all most of our science is funded by industry. And I couldn't agree more with Marty that we need sort of upstream policy solutions to fund um 
science that's important, but may not be in those confluences of interest with profit-driven uh, enterprises. Tracy? Yeah, and I, I would I would actually just add to that thought that, you know, I don't know if it's the right paradigm in the U.S. for all of the funding or most of the funding to be coming from the NIH. Um, and I would just give my own experience from Denmark, you know, raising money to do my PhD. I got most of my funding actually through generic like foundations and grants where you could basically use the money to do the study that you set out to do, but without, you know, there, there was no sort of like financial conflict of interest with it, like they weren't looking for specific results. Um, and I was actually looking at the, the funders of the like Qatar vaccine studies, and it looked like those were more, that was more generic funding. And I, I was interested, you know, that they actually looked at that they were like really the first ones or one of the first ones to look at the natural immunity question and also look at the waning of the vaccine effect, like over time, sort of like gave us the most transparent results compare that with with Israel, where they really just looked at a snapshot of time and potentially confounded results. But I think the issue with like giving so much central like you know centralizing all of the research funding or not all of it but so much of it with the nih is sort of what we've seen with the pandemic that people sort of feel trapped in that they have to like publicly say and do certain things to continue to be funded by the nih and i think that that that's ended up being a conflict or sort of like has you know prevented i guess our scientific understanding from progressing as quickly as it could have because people feel like there are things they can and can't say and so i feel like a solution moving forward is going to be having more of those generic donor like type of grants for medical research where it doesn't necessarily come from the nih and centralized funding or from the pharmaceutical industry I guess I'll just say, just to give Adam the last thought, but I'll just add that there are some people who actually say that NIH, the way the funding should be is modified lottery, have very low criteria to make sure people with like s severe typos, we throw them out and then just literally randomly pick people because the current infrastructure is so bad, it's no better than randomness. Adam, closing thoughts on this issue? Vinay, you and I wrote in Ending Medical Reversal, and like everything else in that book, it's been ignored. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, we, that's the big difference in fun. We, we're not making that much money for it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we wrote about in that, I mean, we proposed a model that, you know, pharma would sort of give the money mm -hmm. for the studies that need to be done of their drugs and other drugs, right, to a, you know, third-party funder. And I think we need to move to that because, listen, as John said, pharma does a whole lot of good. You know, we have a lot of great drugs, vaccines, devices, so on and so forth. Um, but we need to we need to have those evaluated in a disinterested way. And I think the only way is to pull money away from them. So somebody else is designing these studies, doing these studies, analyzing these studies and amazingly writing them up. That's well put. Thank you all for doing this. It's been a pleasure.